everyone and welcome back to Haunted History Chronicles. Before we introduce today's podcast or guest, if you like this podcast, please consider leaving a review. It costs nothing, but it helps share news of the podcast and guests I feature with others interested within the paranormal. It's a simple and easy way to help the podcast continue to grow and be a space for people to chat and come together. If you haven't already found us on the Haunted History Chronicles website, Instagram, Facebook or Twitter, you can find links to all social media pages in any of the notes for an episode. Come and join us to get involved and gain access to additional blogs, news and updates. And now, let's get started introducing today's episode. Joining me today is Richard Estep, a paramedic and paranormal investigator who hails from Great Britain and who currently makes his home in the United States. His work features on the TV series Haunted Case Files, Haunted Hospitals and Paranormal 911. When he's not travelling the world collecting ghost stories and investigating haunted houses, he's writing about those very same places or having fun writing fiction with a distinctly supernatural theme to it. For those interested, you can join Richard at the Jamaica Inn on Saturday the 11th of February from 7pm until 2.30am for an evening including a two-course meal, a fabulous talk from Richard, along with a book signing, and of course the chance to investigate the inn. I'll leave a link for information on the event and how to get hold of tickets in the podcast description notes. And now, let's welcome Richard. Hi Richard, thank you for joining me tonight. It's great to talk to you. Hi Michelle, thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Do you want to just start by telling us a little bit about you and your background? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I come from Leicestershire in England originally and I started paranormal investigation there in the mid-90s. Then I moved to the States in 1999 and have continued to do that ever since. So now I live outside scenic Boulder, Colorado where I work as a paramedic and an emergency medical services educator. And you have written an incredible array of books. Do you actually know how many you've written by now? Uh, In publication uh, right now, there are 31, I believe, um, if you count pre-orders from publishers and things of that nature, and I have several more contracted. That's just staggering. I mean, it's an incredible, incredible accolade for just how much hard work you put into investigating some of these locations and researching and then documenting that and putting that out for others. I mean, I say just hats off to you because that is not an easy thing to do alongside your day job. Oh, thank you. Well, it's it's kind of how I stay somewhat sane with the day job that I have. Everybody has something that uh, that they turn to in order to stay on an even keel. And I like to write. I like to have adventures and take readers along with me on them. So it works well. So how did you get into the paranormal? Where was your kind of starting point? Well, from a very young age, my parents, uh, I should say my grandparents lived in uh, Hull, which British listeners and hopefully readers will be familiar with. Um, And uh, they lived in a haunted house. I'd heard stories when I was growing up and we would visit my grandparents on weekends and holidays about the house being haunted by uh, the ghost of an old lady that uh, would tuck uh, my aunts and uncles into bed at night before they went to sleep. And this happened um, uh, during the, the Second World War when my grandfather was away fighting in um, Burma. 
And uh, none of the kids at the time realized that this was not a flesh and blood person, a friend of the family. They just assumed, you know, hey, it's an adult. It must be a friend of our, our parents. Uh, and they never really gave much thought to it until um, my grandfather returned home and uh, they started telling stories about this lady and uh, it turned out that she was a former resident of the home who had died there and i like to think that during a, a very difficult time um when my grandmother was trying to raise a whole bunch of kids alone in one of those big you know 1940s kind of families um that she saw the need to lend a if not a helping hand at very least keep a watchful eye out for the kids safety and when that need was no longer there she she moved on so I, uh, I ended up uh, sleeping in one of the bedrooms where the, the old lady was said to appear. And uh, she never visited me, but uh, I was sleeping in there alone. I didn't have brothers and sisters sleeping in there with me. So I would be half terrified, half fascinated, wondering whether I would get a visit from the resident ghost. And that led me to the library. Because back in those days, we had no paranormal TV. You had to read about ghosts and hauntings if you were interested in them and that really meant the books of people like peter underwood who is i think to this day um one of the biggest most revered influences i have in the field i mean his work is incredible i mean i echo what you you've just said i mean they are great books to kind of start your journey and to see how someone has approached their research and documented that and put that out for other people i mean really an incredible body of work it is an incredible body of work that holds it well and i think he uh was kind of the last of the gentleman ghost hunters you know um maybe it's just as i get older i find the idea of wandering around with a tweed jacket and the pipe kind of uh, comforting <laughs> but uh i've i've often bemoaned the state of the, the paranormal field today and how everything is dark and demonic and negative and you know evil and all that stuff sells of course, it isn't really that way. But um, Peter Underwood told these these true life ghost stories of fascinating historic old manor houses and castles and things of that nature where they weren't particularly chilling. You know, they weren't terrifying. Some were, but for the most part, he showcased some grand old English locations. And, uh, and I think that's something we could do with returning to a little bit in that field. Oh, I think so. Absolutely. I agree with that one. It, it somehow there was an authenticity about it because they were they, they weren't salacious it wasn't it wasn't kind of a thrill-seeking thing it was it was just a genuine account of the history the heritage the location experiences and kind of tying those threads together and, and, and i echo what you said i think seeing a return to some of that would be fantastic in my opinion I, I absolutely agree. And if you just heard a demonic growl, my dog was just sneezing. Um, she's sitting here at my feet as we as we record. Uh, yeah, I, I do think a return to that kind of thing, uh, at least in some measure, is a, is a good thing. You know, um, I had at least one book um, had its title changed by a publisher, and I won't name the publisher of the book, but because it wasn't scary enough, uh, which is a shame. I'd wanted to call the book "These Haunted Hallways." Because I liked the images that evoked, you know, of these old, like, picturesque historical places. And unfortunately, scary sells and sweet doesn't. I think that's where we can see the influence of, you know, some TV shows that really do play on that element of trying to scare 
yeah. maybe less so on the real investigating possibly uh, um, that's that's true and, and i'm as guilty as anyone i mean i'm on some of those shows and the truth of it is those shows kind of have to attract viewers mm -hmm. they have to attract ratings i don't know that anybody would truly watch um an accurate show that involved investigating haunted locations because there would be a lot of sitting around in the dark waiting for stuff to happen that often doesn't absolutely so we've made that rod for our own back i think but this is where i think when you have books like you're putting out and other people working in the field and you know showcasing what it can be and what it is you know you kind of get a, a blend of both worlds then for for people who are starting that journey who are interested to see well yes this is entertainment and it's fascinating and it's a great way to maybe have that first experience and and realize this is something maybe i do want to find out more about but let's see what other people are doing you know it's kind of that sideways step then into seeing what other people are writing investigating producing and what they're doing that's not on television screens absolutely and and i think that there's so much more to the field and to the possibility and potential of it than we see on TV, you know? I, I really, I'm in two minds about paratourism. I know that we're seeing, certainly when I began doing this, it was unheard of, the idea that people might pay money and get together to spend a night in a haunted location looking for ghosts. That, we were, we were regarded as being quite strange. I was working in an office in Leicester at the time I started doing this and definitely had that reputation as being the oddball, you know? Everybody else would be at the football on the weekends and I would be going to some investigate claims of a haunting. Now it's it's become flipped uh, and we're seeing it's become quite a fashionable, trendy thing to do. So I think people are becoming more open to it. Unfortunately, the more open uh, the public is to it, the more charlatans there are that are willing to try and separate them from their money without delivering an honest experience or a product. Yes, and that's again where I think there needs to be this balance of, of highlighting and showcasing some of the incredible work that people do to help kind of offer that other perspective that it, there are some really phenomenal people in this field. These are who we should be trying to gravitate towards and these are the people we should be having these kinds of discussions with and let's try and, and help people be a bit more discerning maybe in, in terms of this journey. I think that's a wonderful perspective, Michelle. Thank you. I sometimes have them very late at night. <laughs> so you kind of mentioned, um, obviously, your very early childhood experiences. And growing up in the UK, I think we have a plethora of different locations at our fingertips and, you know, on our doorsteps to kind of investigate that are phenomenal for history, for the paranormal. Do you have any particular favourite locations either here in the UK or over in the States that you've really enjoyed exploring? Oh, good Lord. Yeah, I have such a list. Um, in the UK, there's the Jamaica Inn in Cornwall is one of my favorite, if not my favorite haunted inns. Um, I do love Bodmin Jail. Um, mm -hmm. I'm looking forward to returning there next year to see how things have changed now that it's, um, it's partially a hotel as opposed to just a, a historic attraction. Um, and I'm a big fan of, uh, I know it's controversial, but 30 East Drive, Pontefract too. Um, living in that house while I researched the book which I co-wrote with Bill Bungay. Um, that was quite an experience, one I'll never forget. Here in the States, I do love the Stanley Hotel. I did ghost tours there for three years. I'll always have a soft spot for that. Pretty much any haunted hospital you care to name, like 
Asylum 49 or Old South Pittsburgh Hospital, places where people who did similar work to me still are said to to work or, or have left some energy behind, some imprint. I'm very fond of haunted medical locations as well. And then lastly, I'd have to name Gettysburg. Um, something about that place. It is one of the most haunted and hallowed places in the entire world. And I feel constantly drawn back there. I'm very envious that you get to dip your toe into all of these locations across the UK and the States. I mean, it's quite a paranormal passport, really. Um, I can't think of many people who get to explore in quite the same way as you do. Well, I'm, I'm fortunate in that I figured out how to make um, a kind of a living from doing something I'm passionate about. Uh, and the absolute truth of it is, I just about break even writing books versus spending money on the next trip, you know? So mm -hmm. I know that when I first got a book contract, which would be 2015, for a book called In Search of the Paranormal, I was really excited. Um, it turns out, Michelle, I got a six-figure book deal there, uh, which was great. Wow. And then no one told me there was a decimal point. Yes. So, <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, you, you quickly learn how much money you don't make in writing unless you're, you know, at the absolute top of the the tier, the, the Lee Childs and people like that. So um, I'm at a point in my life I have enough books out and people that pick up one of my books frequently will say, what else has this guy written? I liked it. They'll move on to some more. I'm at a point in my life now where my writing funds my research. It's become a self-sustaining hobby. I don't know that I'll ever get rich on it, nor is that my intent. You know, I'm, I'm very aware that my day job is taking care of people. But if you can make your passion pay in life, uh, then it makes you a happy person. So I feel very blessed in that regard. Absolutely. And I think that's such a lovely way of explaining kind of about you and who you are and why you're doing this. I mean, it's it's very humbling, I think, hearing that. And, you know, I think there's lots of people that will listen to that and and kind of have a smile on their face hearing it. So, you know, again, hats off to you because not everybody goes into this with that same kind of motivation. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I also very much enjoy being able to shine a light on locations that uh, perhaps deserve a little more love and attention and will get people in through the doors. It brings me a lot of joy to hear that somebody read one of my books and then went to the location to experience it for themselves. You know? Um, yeah. It gives me a great sense of purpose and satisfaction. And this is really kind of why I love your writing because, you know, some of the places that you write about, obviously I've been to, I ex I've investigated them myself. And so I kind of have that personal um, experience of where you're writing about. But then you also dive into locations that really are on my bucket list that given that I am frightened of flying means that I'm probably not going to investigate them unless unless some teleportation thing happens and I can just blink and be there without any fear of plummeting into the ocean. So, you know, I love that I can dive into the detail that you're putting into your books for locations that aren't as accessible for me. And one of those is the Liska, which mm. is, I mean, it takes so many things for me because I do love true crime, but I love the paranormal. I love history. And what I found so amazing about your book is that you touch on the history and the history is important and that really does come through but what we have is really an account that shows that there is so much to this piece of history to this property to the paranormal activity and it's so comprehensive because 
you really do take the reader through encounters, other people's experiences, what's been reported previously before you then kind of go in and start documenting your own experiences. And I think that's so comprehensive an approach to really kind of detail it to that level and show that there is so much more than maybe what people necessarily first think of. Thank you. Um, Velisca is, it's a, it's a tragic, tragic case. Um, and when you walk into that house, whether the first time or the fifth time, you're keenly aware of what happened there because the families, excuse me, the faces of the murdered family and the two twins that were staying the night with them, all eight of those people who were brutally killed in the house by an unknown assailant, they're staring down at you from the walls. So um, I, when I wrote that book, I very much wanted to do them, I don't want to say do them justice until the killer is identified, which I don't think he ever will be conclusively. Um, it's impossible for them to have true justice, but I wanted to tell their story in a way that wasn't exploitative uh, and encourage people to, to visit the house and visit the cemetery where they're buried and um, experience it for themselves. It always makes me stop in, in my tracks when I hear from a reader who tells me the only way I'll get to experience the Velisca house or Bodmin jail or wherever uh, is through one of your books. So I do very much try to bring the reader in as if they're sitting by my side in, in those dark and haunted places. But I also try and demystify uh, and kind of um, not familiarize, but I like to shine a light on those places and on the events, especially when they've been sensationalized elsewhere. I feel like um, certainly paranormal television does a great deal of injustice to some of these places. And it's one thing when you work for a TV network and you are forced to, you know, deliver certain results week in and week out. As a writer, I really don't answer to anybody but the truth of my own conscience. And again, I think that's why it was such a really thorough, in-depth account of your experiences, but what's kind of gone before, where you really do kind of tie together some of the things that have been put out there about it, possible theories, other people's thoughts around it. And you kind of bring that together to allow people to really step back and ask that question of themselves. What do I think based on you know what I'm reading? What do I think could be happening here? Is this something that I could go and investigate or you know just ponder from your experiences if like me, you can't get there? And, and that's something you don't often see when um, you're reading documentation around a location, that kind of ability to step into it and start asking those questions for yourself and what you think might be going on. Yeah, I'm a big fan of, I'm very willing to tell people what I think, but I don't like telling people what to think. I like to lay it out and let people decide for themselves, but I'll give them my opinion, you know. Working here in the States, living here in the States, the, the belief in demons and the demonic is extremely prevalent and it's far less so in the UK. Uh, so, you know, we all view paranormal phenomena and these cases through the prism of our own beliefs and our own inherent biases. Me as much as anybody. And you know one of the things that I think was really again just fascinating was just you being able to unpick that and write about that and help someone to understand that as well. Um, that you know we we all have these biases, we all have these kinds of things that might influence what we think might be going on and so you're unpicking things that have happened before and trying to help people to recognize that maybe we need to step back and reflect and really think 
for ourselves what might be happening here and, and see if we're getting the same kind of information, the same types of evidence. And if not, what are we getting? What is happening here? What do I think is going on and not necessarily what I'm being told by someone else? Absolutely. And I'm fortunate that I, I get to partner with experts. Uh, I know that's a controversial term in the paranormal field, but I, I, I do maintain that a lot of locations have genuine experts on that location. So at Velisca, I have to give a big shout out to Johnny Hauser, who lives next door and who takes care of the house. Um, and also uh, his own home has been affected by by some of the phenomena. It seems to be that um, the activity in the in the Moore house as the Velisca house is more accurately called, has bled over into his own home. So um, I'm really fortunate when people like that, who if they wanted to be, could be very territorial, um, will often uh, very graciously go on the record and share their time and their expertise with myself and my readers. I really appreciate it when that happens. And if I remember rightly, having read the book, um, he very much thinks that the, the possibility is that the horse, you know, the, the house is haunting itself, that this is something very much being conjured up by, by thought. And um, I, I think that's a, a really interesting take and um, a really fascinating theory when it comes to the house itself. It really is. Um, and as you know, having read the book, I, I interviewed other people who thought that the spirit of the killer haunts the house. Other people think the spirits of the victims, which I truly hope is not the case. Other people think that there is some kind of negative entity there. Um, there are many, many different theories ex trying to explain what's going on in that house. And um, it kind of fascinates me that so many people have so many different perspectives. I slept in that house. Uh, and I fully expected not to be able to, um, but I was able to do that. So I, I, I didn't have the just nightmarish experiences that, that some people have. I like sharing as much of that as possible as I can with a readership. But at the end of the day, it's up to each individual reader to decide for him or herself uh, what's going on. Yeah, again, one of the things that I really like reading your work is, you know, you kind of very clearly in, in this case, help kind of piece together what you were doing to help investigate this property. And just these little kinds of strategies, um, research ideas, investigations that you're doing that you just subtly drop in that I think, you know, for somebody who is interested in investigating a property could really learn from and, and try and incorporate in their own practice. I mean, one example that just jumped out at me, which I thought was incredibly creative, was you happened to come across some of the Scrabble tiles. And so you arrange them to see if they get moved or if somebody spells out a word. And, you know, something like that is not something that you see every day, but it's something that you can easily set up to aid your investigation. And I, and I, and I, I appreciate that kind of creativity and, and little touches that you're kind of adding to the book to help paint this very detailed investigative approach that you've taken during this process. Oh, thank you. I just I just got back from Harriman, Tennessee, where I was investigating the old Harriman Hospital. And while I was there, I learned that the town Christmas parade would be um, during one of the nights of my stay. And I knew that was just going to ruin any chance I get at getting EVPs during that time window, you know? The, the contamination mm -hmm. would be too great. So I had an idea. 
instead of looking at that in a we might as well take a few hours off kind of way i thought look at look at all the potential energy that a whole town's worth of people coming by the front doors might bring what if we were able to not only ride that wave but boost it so i decided that we were going to throw a christmas party a holiday party for the dead and that we were going to we purchased a bunch of um please come to our holiday party cards we hand wrote them and delivered one to every patient room in the hospital uh, and left them at every nursing desk too, this old abandoned hospital. And then I, I called upon some of my friends. You can't have a holiday party without entertainment, right? So um, mm -hmm. I got some Christmas carols from Aaron Sagers and Dustin Parry, uh, which they sent in via video uh, so that we could play those for the spirits of the hospital. And then I set up a, a Zoom where uh, John Tenney, if you're familiar with John, he's one of the most incredible figures in the paranormal field. John Tenney and his podcasting partner, Jessica Napik, um, basically were a stand-up comedy act for us over Zoom, giving lots of laughs, telling lots of jokes, really getting the energies up there. And uh, my good friend, Mark Megabo of the Face Vocal Band, gave us uh, a musical performance over Zoom as well. And the whole idea was to make the spirits of the hospital feel appreciated in the holiday season. So we had festooned the nurses' stations with holiday lights. We put up candy canes. We It basically looked like Christmas had vomited on this hospital. And um, lo and behold, that night, if we didn't capture a shadow figure on camera, just as we were playing some of our Christmas carols. So it was an experiment I'd never really thought about until the opportunity was staring me in the face. And easily nothing could have happened, but sometimes you learn a lot from just taking a, a chance like that. Absolutely. And thinking outside of the box and and not sticking to, you know, kind of what we were saying before about just replicating what you see on television. It's 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 networking. It's seeing what other people do. It's it's trying something different. It's maybe looking at what someone's done in the past and, and trying to emulate some of that as a as a technique, but something simple or just taking the you know advantage of an opportunity like a Christmas party to to see what that stirs up and and like I said I appreciate that you're documenting that so that people have this perspective of what paranormal investigating can and should be like. Thank you. I think we all we all have different ideas of what it can and should be like, don't we? But um, I know that when I first started. Um, we had very little in the way of equipment. So back in the 90s, which makes me feel so old, um, we essentially had tape recorders and, and really that was it. Not a whole lot of equipment. Then early 2000s were the days when we all, I think in a rather embarrassed sort of way, wandered around with K2s, you know, um, thinking that they were ghost detectors. Um, and uh we've kind of progressed a lot from there or i like to think that we have but i do believe we should be trying new things now it isn't enough to just emulate something that you see on tv it isn't enough to buy the latest gadget whether it's the sls or whatever the flavor of the month is and sit down with it and uh, see what you get i think it's it's incumbent on us that are in the field to try and find innovative ways to experiment and sometimes you get nothing and sometimes you get surprised which is what makes it all worth it if I hadn't had at least a sprinkling of those moments, I would have given up a long time ago and I would spend my holidays like on the beach or something instead of instead of creeping around dark and haunted old places. Um, seeing uh, the what appeared to be the apparition of a little girl 
um, on Halloween night six years ago at Asylum 49 in Utah. That was a milestone. Seeing very clearly a shadow figure uh, behind the nurse's desk at Old South Pittsburgh Hospital uh, three years ago, that also absolutely floored me. Whenever we get anything that appears to be a genuine brush with with something beyond our frame of reference, something that we cannot explain, um, it always invigorates me and it reminds me why I not only got into this field, but why I stay in it. You know, you, you have to wait for them to come around. And sometimes it takes researching and going back to a location so many times to really get to know it and the heart of it. And suddenly then it starts speaking to you. That's absolutely true. I mean, um, one of the things many Americans do is hunting is a big thing here. And it's it's not my cup of tea at all. I'm not cut out to hunt animals. But if you talk to hunters, and, and I do not like the term ghost hunter at all. Unfortunately, that label is stuck and we've lost that particular fight. But if you talk to a hunter about what they do, they'll start out by going out into the woods or going out into the wilds and they'll disguise themselves a little bit. And just their their entry onto the scene disturbs the environment. You know, the, the birds, the various um, uh, creatures and critters will be aware of their presence and the dynamic of the, of the woodland um, reacts differently. And then if they simply sit there for a while, spend some time acclimating to the location, to the environment, and letting the environment get used to them, pretty soon everything everything resumes as it normally would. And I think that's very similar to what we experience at, at haunted locations. Uh, you can't just bounce in for two or three hours and expect to start getting results, I think. I mean, it does happen, but very rarely. I think you need to get used to the location and you need to allow it to get used to you. And that means, for me at least, staying for at least a 24-hour cycle, preferably days, if at all possible. It takes that long to understand how the cycles of the building actually work, how the building behaves when it um, when it gets cooler at night and the metal structure starts to contract. Where are the pings and bangs and pops that some people have probably reported as, as phantom footsteps, you know? Um, I just stayed in a haunted location a while ago where the gurgles through the radiator system sounded like the most unearthly moans and cries. It takes you a, a while to get used to that. So there's a lot to be said for immersing yourself in that environment and spending some time there. Before we head back to the podcast, if you haven't already visited the Haunted History Chronicles Patreon page, now is the perfect time to join, to listen and enjoy a multitude of additional podcasts, merchandise, mail and other written materials. It's a great way to support the podcast continue to grow and put out additional content, share guests and their stories, as well as helping the podcast continue to be enjoyed. You should be able to see goals the podcast is working towards to help see how your support contributes to this and with different tiers, you can help for as little as you like, and as long as you like. For the month of February, there are going to be daily paranormal podcasts available to enjoy on most tiers, and signing up now will gain you access to these as well as all previous archived content. You can find the link in the episode description notes, as well as on the Haunted History Chronicles website. And remember, you can always help support guests in the podcast by coming and liking the social media pages and chatting over there. It's truly all very much appreciated. And now, 
let's head back to the podcast. And also, I think there's something very true in also immersing yourself in an environment in all of its kind of states, daytime, nighttime, um, different types of seasons, because, you know, there is this association with being a paranormal investigator only being something that happens at nighttime with a flashlight and, you know, adding to that creepiness. Actually, so many reports of, of activity happen in the daytime. And, you know, think about what we could be missing by just simply only researching and exploring a location at certain times of the of the evening when it is dark. You know, there's something about really seeing it at all of its moments. Well, you make a great point. And something that that I've recently come to believe is, I think that we may be making a mistake focusing our, our paranormal investigations at night. Um, the reason we do it, I know that people tend to think, oh, ghosts come out at night. You know, uh, most, most people in the paranormal field are well aware that isn't the case. Um, paranormal phenomena are reported at all hours of the day and night. But um, I was investigating a place called Ashmore Estates which is a former poor farm. I don't know if you're familiar with the, the concept, but this was essentially a place um, kind of like a British workhouse of the Victorian era, but much happier and much um, less harsh conditions. It would be where people that had no home, the homeless would live and they would farm the land in order to um, uh, subsist, in order to keep the place going, keep the doors open. And we noticed that fairly regularly, the building was more active during daylight hours than at night. And I spoke with the owner, Robin Terry, and Robin said, you know, you need to think about what this place used to be, Richard. This was a place of routine. This was essentially a farm. So it would be early to bed, early to rise, which means the residents of Ashmore Estates would have gotten up with the sun. They would have gotten up at five or 5.30 in the morning. um, And they were creatures of routine. They did this day in, day out. Most of them were in bed and lights out by eight o'clock at night. So why would we expect to get paranormal activity at 9, 10, 11, 12, 1 a.m.? And that had never really occurred to me before. Uh, I think the, ma- the main reason so many people uh, do investigations at night is simple. We all have day jobs, or most of us. So it's a matter of convenience. Um, but it really made me reevaluate the idea of spending more of the daylight hours inside these locations. And when you start to unpick that, you realise the number of locations where actually that would be so relevant to, you know, schools, for example. I mean, the the list goes on and on where you really can see how maybe the schedule just doesn't match up for nighttime. You know, it, it again, just like you said, just really does beg that question. You know, are we missing out on something by by trying to do it on our time rather than a time that is is older <laughs> you know it's a routine that is older based on how the property was used absolutely i mean hospitals being my forte even a hospital which is 24 hours a day seven days a week 365 days a year even a hospital has a, a rhythm you see more elective surgeries procedures like that are performed uh during daylight hours between 7 a.m and 5 p.m you know um a hospital slows down after dark Uh, I mean, there are exceptions. Emergency rooms can get busier at night sometimes. But um, for the most part, there is a routine. There is a regimen there. And um, it behooves us, I think, to look at that when we 
put together a plan for how we're going to investigate those places. Absolutely. And, you know, it's it's something that I think if somebody really wanted to experiment with and investigate as a research thought, as a, you know, something to try and see if there's something to that. I mean, it would be a fascinating study to read, to, to, to kind of see what evidence and documentation people came up with compared to others. I mean, yeah, that would be one that I'd look at and, and take away and have a, a good gander at for sure. I think there's definitely something to be looked at there just shaking it up a little bit you know changing the mix up a little bit and, mm. um, if, if it is possible to do daytime investigations i think it's a wonderful thing to do uh, and i'm trying to do more of it uh, moving forward myself but i think just in general this kind of sense of things working sometimes to certain times whether it's you know times of the year daytime nighttime etc you know there is there's so many kind of strands to that you know with um, things that work on a on an annual basis, you know, some kind of um, specific date. I mean, we see these things all of the time, don't we? Um, things more prevalent during the winter months or when it's raining. And these are all things that I think within the paranormal field we're, we're very much accustomed to, we think about and we try and explore and some people do really very well. But like, I, you know, we were saying, I don't think anybody's ever really latched on to daytime investigating. In, in that same kind of equal measure as some of these other thoughts and theories have been looked at. Absolutely. And it's it's something that I can't take credit for that notion. I think Robin Terry is the guy that put that idea in my head. And it kind of hit me, you know, why don't we do this? What? And the, the problem is there's tremendous inertia in the field. Many of us do things just because we've seen others do them. Yeah. Um, I think we're all guilty of that to a greater or a lesser degree. And it's, it's very important in this field to choose your role models carefully and to ask your own questions. So uh, when Robin put that idea in my head of why, why would you just restrict yourself to primarily walking around these buildings at night, there are few sound reasons I could give him. The only ones I could think of would be that the outside world's a little bit quieter, so you have less ambient noise to contaminate your audio. But beyond that, not too much. So. I'd like to see more investigators do daytime stuff and see what we all can get. Absolutely. And, you know, I think you you said something again that just resonates so much with me just a moment ago when, you know, it's about asking questions of ourselves and each other. And, and that comes from good networking by making connections with people and and having discussions. And, you know, I think if you can find the right type of people within this field where you can have that kind of a discourse Again, it's so powerful then, I think, what you can then get out of that to make you think yourself. And again, and this is where I, I say, you know, this is something that your books help people to do. You don't spoon feed people things. You're really helping people to reflect themselves and think about some things. And that, I think, is so important. Oh, thank you very much. That's kind of you. Um, I'm just a big believer in in trying new stuff and, and, and kind of encouraging people. And also when I make mistakes, I, I like to educate people on them. One that I got educated on by a guy called Kenny Biddle um, was using REM pods. You know, I'm sure most of your listeners are familiar with REM pods. I used to use them all the time and, and found them sometimes quite impressive until you learn that any kind of radio transmitter like a, a walkie talkie or a vehicle mounted radio on a police car or a fire engine or an ambulance or 
even a taxi, if taxis uh, happen to use them. But anything like that will set off a REM pod. So the simple fix is to put the REM pod in a Faraday cage and to screen it from those external EM sources. And when I learned that and I learned how to make a Faraday cage for $20, which all you need is those baking trays that you use to bake a Sunday roast in. You can make a Faraday cage out of them pretty easily with a little bit of duct tape. I started doing that all the time. And I, I love sharing that piece of knowledge that came from Kenny with anyone I see using a REM pod. It's all about how do we do this better and uh, how do we improve the quality of our data and the experience that we're all getting. And again, that's something that you know really does come through your books. I mean, we were talking about um, a your book just you know not that long ago, and again, you do that in there. I mean, I remember um, at one point reading about the flashlight experiment and how yeah. you had you know someone on your team had this experience where the flashlight turned off and then turned itself back on again. And you know, you you really did detail and document why in this case that was actually quite profound. Whereas normally if that happens and you're utilizing that kind of technique, how the torch itself might be what's causing the phenomena. And the fact that you went through those steps, I think was like, yes, thank you. <laughs> yeah, the, the flashlight experiment or the flashlight trick as I rather call it, I, I, I didn't know any better when I started in this field, but for anyone that doesn't know it, it involves using a mag light, which if you unscrew it just to the point where the contact is barely being made in the circuit, you'll see the light pulse off and on. And this has been used by many people um, over the last 10, 15 years uh, as, a, as a supposed method of contacting spirits. The idea being that they can manipulate the light to turn on and off. The problem with that is, as any skeptic will tell you, that you do get fluctuations because of the current running through the electrical circuits. So it's it's something that uh, you can see those flashes of light quite easily uh, for perfectly mundane, non-paranormal reasons. What was happening at Velisca was that we were having this happen with an LED flashlight which means the only way to um, to trigger that flashlight off and on was to manipulate a switch, um, either outside the device or the connections within the device itself. This wasn't a, a case of unscrewing it to a certain point and letting fluctuations happen and blaming it on ghosts. This was something that was harder to explain. And, and you know, like I said, that's, that's the difference. I think you take the, the time to explain those moments and to help people maybe to understand how some things might be not what you expect. It might be just not understanding how something might be put up something or waiting in that manner, like you were saying about the record. You know, it's it's taking the time and sharing knowledge and experience and expertise. And I think if we all did that more, again, even better. <laughs> so, you know, hats off that you're really kind of trying to bring that into what you're doing because not many people do. They kind of hold on to and safeguard this information as if it's ours alone and, and not share it with other people, which can be a shame. Mm. We do, you see that in any line of work. Um, you, you always see that person in, in an office or, any kind of work environment that wants to silo their part of the world because they feel it makes them indispensable. Uh, and um, I'm a big believer in, in the old phrase that a rising tide will lift all boats. Uh, the more you share, the more someone else will want to share with you. Absolutely. So um, 
And I think the same is true of locations. You see some people that are just so territorial about specific locations. They believe that only they should be able to investigate them. I'm a big believer. If somebody else wants to write a book about the haunting of Valeska um, or the Denver Botanic Gardens or Asylum for or wherever it is, more power to you. Go ahead and do it. I look forward to reading it. I think that there's always room for more good work and there's always room for collaborating with good people in the field. And again, you know, I, I mean, I keep kind of com coming back to what you're doing in your books, but you actually do that because you reference other people. You talk about what they think. You're sharing their books and what they're writing about and what they're doing. And I think if we did more of that, great. It's just more information at people's fingertips. It's more documentation. It's more data that's being put out there that people can then start bringing these threads together and looking at and thinking about things for themselves. And, you know, that's that's the important takeaway, I think, that we should all be trying to do this, not trying to do something in isolation. <laughs> you know, it, you just don't get as much information. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, the more we can do this together, the more we can share, um, I think, and the more perspectives we can bring, the better chance we have of unlocking whatever it is at, at the heart of all this, I like to think. Absolutely. So in terms of next steps, what's your current project or future projects that you've got in the pipe work? Because I'm sure there are many. <laughs> I, I do. I always have several on the go um, at any one moment in various stages of research or completion. So I did just get back from Tennessee, uh, where I looked at the haunting of the old Harriman Hospital. I'm finishing a book on Fort Mifflin on the Delaware, uh, which is a Revolutionary War um, ghost haunting um, true life story. Then I have several other locations to write about next year. Uh, I do have to finish my book about the Jamaica Inn, for one, Ashmore Estates, the Sally House. And uh, I just signed a contract with a publisher to write a book called In Search of Demons. Um, being an agnostic myself and living here in the middle of the US where a belief in demons is so prevalent here in the 21st century, I'm very interested in looking at not only why we believe in this, this concept, but do they objectively exist? And is there any way to, what evidence is there to support the idea? Uh, so I'm looking forward to talking to people from ranging from skeptics to exorcists and everybody in between. Gosh, that sounds fascinating. I mean, they, I mean, they all sound fascinating. It's no one thing is the same as another, which is great. And, you know, we will make sure to put all of your details in the podcast and on the website. So if someone hasn't discovered you and found some of your books, you know, it will help signpost someone maybe to discover a fantastic paranormal investigator and writer who might help them on that next kind of step on their journey. And I, I, I mean, I can't recommend your books highly enough. They are fantastic. And so we will make sure to put out that for people who are listening. Thank you so much. That's really kind of you to say. And uh, I will say thank you so much for your time today because it's incredible. And as I said at the start, I know how busy you are. And so I really appreciate you coming and chatting with me. Oh, it was an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate the invitation. And anytime you want to come and chat about anything, whether it's demons or another location or another book on the on the kind of the horizon where you've got something to share, then just let me know. You're always welcome as a guest. Thank you very much. I would definitely take you up on that. And I will say goodbye to everyone listening. Bye, everyone. Bye.